Hello, I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. This podcast is brought to you by RAIN Worldview, the premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Find out how RAIN can help you stay ahead of global events at rainnetwork.com. the kid has RSV and they're doing fine, they're doing fine. If the kid has or does not have RSV and they're sick, well, they're sick and they need to go to a hospital. So it's not like with adults where it's important to know whether you've got COVID or flu because there's actually you know, medical treatments for those. Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast series. I'm Emily Donahue. On today's podcast, Beyond COVID, our host David Lawrence talks with Dr. Bill Lang and Dr. Fred Southwick about RSV and how parents can identify symptoms in young children, about the intense flu season making its way up the East Coast, and the latest COVID vaccine news. Fred and Bill, once again, uh, thanks for convening uh, the podcast. And it would be great um, to get an update just in general about uh, what's happening in the world of infectious diseases, what is the data showing, and uh, what might be on the horizon. Um, So, Bill. Well, what I could talk about a bit is the respiratory disease, infectious respiratory disease situation. What it appears is going on is that For the past three years, we've had everybody in masks and social distancing and isolating and this kind of baseline immunity that we have to many respiratory diseases and most especially um, uh, respiratory syncytiovirus or RSV and flu seems to be down. You know, figure generally, people are getting exposed to these at low doses uh, constantly. So you develop a, you have a kind of a constant um, low-grade immunity that's enough to keep you from getting pretty sick, uh, but we don't have that now. So RSV is running at a rate that's you know, four to five times the normally observed rate at this time, and it's also earlier than we normally see. Influenza is at, it's not four or five times, but it is is early and it is well above the normal rate that we see for, for influenza. So those are really what is hitting us hard. It's not COVID. Uh, COVID is not picking up. It is, it's relatively flat. It's not gone away. We are still seeing more COVID deaths than we're seeing, seeing flu deaths. We're still averaging about 300 COVID deaths a day. Uh, flu deaths since the beginning of the flu season, we've had slightly less than 1,500 deaths. That's a lot less than 300 a day. So it's still, uh, COVID is still important. Um, but flu and RSV are the big actors right now. You can d- deal with flu by getting a flu shot. RSV is really only a major problem for kids. It's not a major problem for adults, um, except adults are the ones who pass it on to kids. And even for kids, it's only the small kids, generally less than four, that have major problems with it. But across the U.S. and Canada, there are many hospitals that have have full pediatric ICUs uh, having to divert to other hospitals or they're even having to turn non-ICUs into temporary pediatric ICUs to take care of the number of kids that they're seeing for RSV. So, Bill, apropos that point, um, our people in Texas, including um, the person who leads our 
podcasting efforts uh, has direct family experience with precisely that with the hospitals being overcrowded uh, and not being able to take people in Fred your thoughts on on this Bill is exactly right the the problem is that we've been relatively effective at preventing the spread of other respiratory viruses because of our use of masks and distancing and, and isolation at various times uh, because of uh, COVID-19. The RSV has is, is become a, a very big problem for pediatric ages uh, under four. And the problem is uh, they, these young children can actually have respiratory arrests. So parents really have to be cautious uh, if their child is under four and gets RSV, they uh, can start having very great difficulties breathing. And one of the things to look for is the uh, retractions between the ribs. When they start having difficulty inhaling, you'll see that the space in the ribs will go inward. And as they call those costal retractions, that's a real warning sign. In fact, if the respiratory, if there's any significant difficulty, the child and breathing, you should get them to the emergency room immediately because they very well may need to have be intubated or have some form of respiratory support. And then influenza is showing up predominantly in the southeast, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia have very high uh, rates of influenza, and it seems to be H3N2, which is covered by the vaccine. The problem is the, they're seeing probably as a result of the negative publicity for COVID-19 vaccines, that the percentage of individuals who have been vaccinated is lower than in past years. So uh, not only are they not exposed to the virus, but they're not getting vaccinated. And the vaccine does cover H3N2. Now, the efficacy of the influenza vaccines have consistently been lower than they are for the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. Remember the SARS-CoV-2 initially, 92, 93%, most of the influenza vaccines are in the 60 to 70% protective level. So even if you have the vaccine, you may get uh, symptomatic influenza. Fred, you bring up an important point, which are what to look for with RSV. What are the symptoms? And with our clients, both in the public and private sector, uh, what are the symptoms that people should be looking for? And, and then what should they do? Fever, cough, they may have a runny nose, but the big problem is difficulty breathing. They develop wheezing, uh, almost like an asthmatic. And the reason that uh, little children uh, are more susceptible, their airways are narrower. So the inflammation and spasm of the bronchi uh, leads to more uh, to really narrowing of the airways to the point that they really can't ventilate their lungs properly. They can't get enough air into the lungs. So uh, those are the primary symptoms. It's not that much different than any other res- upper respiratory infection, uh, like such as rhinovirus. The big difference is that they they do experience difficulty breathing. That should never happen with a rhinovirus. Almost never. So uh, if your child has got flu or cold-like uh, symptoms but is having difficulty breathing and they're under four, it's highly likely it's RSV. Yeah. So as a, a family doc who's taken care of a lot of these kids, this is one of those situations where in the, in the 
doctor's office or in the emergency room, you can't tell the difference between RSV and any of these other viruses, but you can look at a child and the child looks sick. They look uncomfortable. They are working, working at having to breathe. They don't have any interest in eating because they're working too hard to breathe. Those are the kids that need support. The support that they need in the hospital is typically not all that great. Um, fortunately, they don't progress to needing intubation that often, but it takes very, very careful management of their fluid intake, including including IV fluids, and very careful management of their oxygenation because as if you keep their oxygen up, that actually helps them from developing the, the airway spasm that can cause problems. So that's the reason for the intensive management. And that's also why we're having such a problem with it. Because with so many kids in the hospital with this, we only have so many docs and nurses that have experience in, in managing this regularly. This is why this is a concern right now. So Bill, I'm, I'm hearing you say that the ability to actually diagnose this almost requires a physical examination. It does. Well, no, there's a, there is a test for it. Um, but it's one of those things that, um, like we're, we're supporting a, a large travel group coming up and we were trying to decide, do we need to have RSV tests? And as, you know, as we thought through it, well, no, because it doesn't matter if the kid has RSV and they're doing fine, they're doing fine. If the car, the kid has, or does not have RSV and they're sick, well, they're sick and they need to go to the hospital. So it's not so much with kids, but with adults where it's important to know whether you've got COVID or uh, flu because there's actually you know, medical treatments for those. That's not the case with RSV. It's symptomatic. It's almost entirely treating the symptoms with RSV. One of the things that has been pointed out seems to be particularly prevalent in the South. Yeah, that's as as uh, Fred pointed out, it really is a swath across the Southeast, starting in Alabama, going up, really extending through D.C., to some extent through New York City. But what is also interesting, if you look at the CDC map that color codes the map according to uh, vac flu vaccination rates, you look at the Southeast. Now, it's, it's of course, it's spread across the country, but subjectively, the Southeast also has the lowest flu vaccination rates running less than a quarter of the people. Um, generally speaking, I don't mean to, I don't want to generalize totally, but the Southeast is generally less than a quarter of people have had a flu shot this year. Whereas you go into the Northeast, there are over 50% of people have had a flu shot. So, uh, you know, I think that's going to play a big role as places that have, have, have flu shots versus don't. So I'm, I'm talking to the uh, organizations that I work with, and I'm saying the number one thing that you can do for your workforces to keep them safe and, and not, you don't have lost time this year is strongly, strongly encourage flu vaccination. And Fred, I'm hearing that the part of the population that's particularly vulnerable are children as opposed to uh, adults. Am I hearing that correctly as well? That's true for RSV. RSV is really no different for adult, most adults unless you're a transplant patient. Uh, we do see patients that are in high immunosuppressives that can get extensive pneumonia and hypoxia, but that's very, very rare. And in those cases, we actually are using, and there is one antiviral that works a little bit. Or it's called ribavirin. And uh, it turns out that we used to aerosolize it. That was very expensive. And uh, it was a uh, teratogenic, could cause defects in uh, pregnant women 
and therefore it was a danger to nurses. We've realized now there's a trial that compared oral the pills to the uh, aerosolized ribavirin, and actually the pills worked a little bit better. So now we are use that for immunocompromised hosts. Otherwise, in adults, it's a very mild disease and should not lead to hospitalization. While in the children, it causes, as uh, Bill described very well, and Bill, I have never taken care of a pediatric RSV, so I appreciate your clinical experience with it. It's only my reading that I understand how severe it is. Uh, and certainly, it's, it can be very dangerous in children. Okay, let me switch uh, back to the variants of uh, COVID. Is there anything on the horizon that you guys are seeing that people should be watching carefully for? The biggest thing right now is that BA4, BA5 have become less than a quarter of all um, cases of COVID that we're seeing in the United States. And actually, it's looking that way in Canada, too. I don't have the variant breakdown uh, for for uh, Europe or the UK, but that means that the what is growing as the more important are the BQ1 and, and a couple of BQ1 subvariants. Um, that's not a big deal. There's still Omicron. The one big deal about it, though, is that the the one remaining monoclonal antibody preparation that we've had that is shown to be effective against Omicron is bebtilovimab. That bebtilovimab is not showing that it is effective against the BQ variants. Um, so people who cannot get um, uh, oral antiviral for this are they're kind of, if they've got the, the BQ1, or if they're in, in an area where BQ1 uh, and, and variants are becoming predominant, the last of the uh, monoclonal antibodies is no longer useful. Additionally, they're finding that a pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, Evushield, is not demonstrating that it is effective against Omicron. So for people who have um, significant immune compromise, who have been on Evishield for preventing COVID, that's not as much on the table. It's vaccinations, which in people who are immunocompromised, can, have, can be problematic. Um, we're, we're losing a couple of our tools, uh, but fortunately, uh, uh, oral, oral antivirals are still effective. Yeah, David, the other point is that the bivalent uh, vaccine booster that Moderna and Pfizer have created, which has the BA5 spike protein as part of its antigen, is more effective than the original vaccines by about a, anywhere from three to five-fold uh, greater dilutions before you uh, neutral, the neutralizing uh, antiviral activity goes away. So it does appear that if you get the bivalent vaccine, you are going to be able to receive better protection against all of the Omicron variants. And so I think that that's one way we can prevent the further spread. The good news is that BQ1 and 1.1 do not seem to be any more severe than any of the other Omicrons. They appear to have a slightly more contagious than the BA5, but it's really not a very big difference, and it's, that's why it's slowly been taking over over the last month or two. Fred, one of the things I keep getting asked, and maybe you would have some insight on this, is the data doesn't seem to demonstrate that on continued boosters, 
do a whole lot for additional protection against severe disease or illness. That you get that from the from the first uh, the the primary series. Um, for people who are at risk, though, even if they get mild COVID, that can rapidly turn into severe COVID. But for the general population, are we really seeing anything that's showing that the the additional boosters are making a big difference in the long run? One of the problems, uh, Bill, with severity disease is, uh, you know, it, it, the populations that are being studied are so different. And I think it's very hard to uh, really assess that in an accurate way. Um, and the only measures so far that are being used that are somewhat quantitative has been uh, the actual serum neutralization of the virus. And they found that actually the best way to do is you give the vaccine and then three or four weeks later, you dilute the serum and you use a live virus. And what they find is you, uh, it take, you can dilute the serum out farther after the booster, the bivalent booster, uh, you can dilute it out further and it will still kill the Omicron variants. So that's the only real data we have because the number of cases has decreased uh, and a lot of the cases are not being reported, as you know, because they're of the home testing. So I think comparisons are very, very difficult. The only cases we know about are those that, end, or most of them, ended up being hospitalized and got a positive PCR which got reported to the state. So if you're only reporting those that are hospitalized, yes, things look severe, and yes, the vaccine isn't working for that small group of people. So you, it's really, really difficult to extrapolate to the general population right now as to the efficacy of the vaccine. The question that I would have about uh, whether the vaccines are, you know, questioning the efficacy, and I've heard you say, and Fred say, you know, it's about the hospital rates. That's what we're trying to manage. So I know our clients are looking, you know, looking at that in their areas to understand how to manage their own businesses. This is just the, the question that I'm getting, and I'm just having a hard time uh, providing a, a scientific answer. Um, some of my, some of the organizations I work with, they they want to be you know, good corporate citizens, and if and if. Boosters are important for maintaining the the workforce and for uh, reducing transmission in the community. They want to continue boosters, but I just have a hard time showing any hard data that demonstrates that boosters make a huge difference. Whereas we know that boosters make, we know that the the initial vaccine makes a huge difference and continues to make a big difference in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. But we have a hard time, I, at least as far as I can see, we have a hard time demonstrating that uh, as it relates to boosters. Yeah, that's why, Bill, the, the serum cidal, uh, you know, titers are about the only objective evidence. And it does show a three to five fold improvement uh, and that should correlate, if you could do a good epidemiologic study, which you cannot do right now, uh, I think it would show that efficacy. And uh, you know, the other point being, as you know, is after three to four months, your immunity from your last booster is begins to wane. 
and you know, the protection uh, from uh, for hospitalization can go down. And therefore, that's the other reason to do it, is you probably need uh, at least the evidence so far is every six months approximately you need a booster in order to maintain your immunity. Well, and that, but then that gets to the question of the humoral or the antibody-based immunity versus the cellular immunity. And it appears that the cellular immunity, which really is was protecting from severe disease and death, remains high. And we don't have great evidence that the boosters are that important for keeping that up because we just haven't been far enough out yet. So it'll be interesting to see that data as that starts to come in. And we I understand that CDC is doing those studies. We just don't have hard, good hard data that shows that yet, unless, unless Fred, you're seeing something that I, that I haven't. No, no, I agree with you. I, I, I think we've underestimated the cell-mediated immunity because it's very hard, it's complicated to test and very expensive. So they just aren't doing it. So, and there was original data for, they looked at patients that had SARS-CoV-1. 15 years later, they found significant cell-mediated immunity among those patients, uh, even though there wasn't any antibody. So there is reason to believe that cell-mediated immunity may uh, have very prolonged uh, protection against very serious disease. The group that, that where the real problem is, and I think if you look at all the deaths, um, it's in the very elderly, those over 70 years old. Uh, they're, they have poor cell-mediated immunity, and if they get exposed, uh, it doesn't appear the vaccine... In our uh, our experience, the vaccine is not. If you're sick enough to be hospitalized, it doesn't seem to matter how much uh, how many vaccines you got. Uh, your immune system is weakened to the point where you are at risk of dying if you get hospitalized and you're elderly. We had a 12% mortality rate uh, among for Omicron in the those over 65. I'm intuiting that the question for data is from companies um, that are trying to set a policy for their workers, whether they want them boosted or not. Um, and That's exactly it. And yeah. I'm having a hard time. I, I feel my gut that a booster is going to keep you from getting COVID. Right. But when we look at even in talking to the companies, they're not seeing a uh, um, absenteeism rate that is influenced to any great extent by boosters yet they are seeing an absenteeism rate that is greatly influenced by did you get your initial primary series or not. And so what I would just say to you again, this is not scientific and, you know, places like Johns Hopkins or others will have better statistics. I will tell you that I, uh, in working with a wide variety of companies and also, you know, governmental agencies, I do not know a single one that currently is enforcing a booster requirement as a condition of returning to work or condition of attending a particular event or whatever. What they are doing, however, is communicating what I refer to as a message encouraging people to consult with their physicians. Boosters are now available. There are pre-existing conditions that may make you more at risk, highlighting the importance of a flu shot uh, etc. And that's exactly what I'm finding, and that's exactly what I'm telling people. But I've got a couple of a couple of companies that say, "Look, we are very concerned with wanting to protect our workforce and protect our workforce's productivity. And if boosters make a difference, then we want to 
I don't know if I want to say require, but but very, very strongly encourage. Right. So that's where we're wrestling okay. with. And as we know, this is a political issue. Okay. That's Fred. I didn't mean to make light of uh, or to pick on you because you're based in Florida, but, you know, uh, that is almost ground zero for the uh, debate uh, around mandates. So anyway. yeah, I, I agree. And actually, there was a very nice article, a uh, USA Today reporter actually reviewed the CDC data very carefully for Florida and found that the and those over 70 years of old of age, that the mortality rate in Florida was by far the highest of any state in the United States uh, because of this uh, misinformation with regards to vaccine, with regards to masks and other public health measures. So uh, even though it's under the radar. In reality, there have been more deaths in Florida as a consequence of this. Reminder that the pandemic has a biological leg, a political leg, and a psychological leg. In any event, guys, thank you very, very much. I truly appreciate your staying on top of all the relevant issues and sharing uh, your knowledge. It's been very, very helpful. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents. David Lawrence is the founder of RAIN. RAIN is a risk intelligence company that provides access to critical insights, analysis, and support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our members. Learn about RAIN's market-leading risk intelligence products and how they can work for your business at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.